from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. We're all looking for ways to save, especially on medical bills. But where do you start? Unless you're a medical billing expert, finding savings can seem impossible. HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance and flags errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. Saving starts with knowing where to look. Visit HealthLock.com today before you see another healthcare provider. When Elizabeth Kendall was in her early 20s, she didn't think there would be anything for her in a Balanchine ballet. I thought it would be old-fashioned because it was ballet, and the ballet in my childhood was old-fashioned. So I resisted going to the New York City Ballet for quite some time, a sort of a decent amount of time. It was the 1970s. Elizabeth was a dance writer in New York. She was young. Ballet was old. She loved postmodern avant-garde dance. She believed art should be challenging, angry even. Good art questioned what came before. It exposed hypocrisy. She hadn't been in New York long, and she was still finding her way, as a writer and as a person. She was trying to move past a family tragedy. Her mother had recently died in a car accident. I was the driver of the car that killed my mother. There was a lot of stuff to bear, a lot of healing that had to go on, but uh, I think a healthy psyche heals itself by numbing itself as much as possible. Now, two years later, she was in New York writing about dance. Another critic told her she had to see Balanchine. So she finally dragged herself to the New York State Theater to see Balanchine's Raimonda Variations. Elizabeth had a press seat and a perfect view. The lights went down and the music began. And I just remember a unique kind of orchestral sound, harps and flutes and strings mingling. So it sounds a little like heaven might sound. At first glance, it was classic, traditional ballet. A man and a woman dancing a pas de deux. Many women on point, wearing pink and blue tutus that flounced like clouds as they moved. 
But what I saw on the stage wasn't anything like the ballet from my young childhood. This wasn't about old manners. There were these people jumping and leaping and twirling around in formation that animated the stage as a sort of magic box that manufactured volume and excitement. The music and the ballet steps glommed together to make a sphere in which everything was alive. And the effect was of 3D music, music that surrounded you and you were inside it. I remember very distinctly feeling in the audience, this is a party and I'm a guest. I've been invited. And for some reason, that thought was terribly moving and terribly inclusive. And the thing came over me, this is a gift. This is joy. This is celebration. I suddenly realized not only that this was worth returning to again and again because something had reached me in the soul, but it also let me know that art did not have to be stern and challenging. Art could be something that was purely nourishing and purely exhilarating, that was ecstatic and tragic at the same time. After that night, Elizabeth started going to Balanchine Ballets a lot. I would go back and I would experiment a little. I would go to the theater and the lights would go down and I would say, okay, I'm going to give you my mood. I'm going to give you all these troubles and you do something with it, said I to the stage. And then I would walk out and I felt like somebody had rinsed me. That sounds suspiciously like baptism talk, but it's all to say that I was, in fact receiving something that I deeply needed and I hadn't known what form I needed it in, some kind of a ceremony, some kind of a ritual kind of healing. From iHeart Podcasts and Rococo Punch, this is The Turning, Room of Mirrors. I'm Erica Lance. Part two. Ritual Healing. Balanchine was not a guy who put on airs. So when I began to see the New York City Ballet, I would sometimes run into Balanchine at a a fruit stand on the street in the Upper West Side where he lived. And I would like to give a little bow and he would give an exaggeratedly courteous bow because he was an admirer of women. That was the extent of their interaction until she was on assignment for the Ford Foundation. She got the chance to interview him one-on-one. And I dressed up to look nice. And there I was presenting myself at his office at the New York State Theater. And he was very courtly. He was casually but beautifully dressed, a gentleman. And you could see that he moved well. He was light on his feet. Elizabeth sat down with Balanchine in his office. 
He was interested in just having a young, attractively dressed, bursting with nerves and vitality person of the female presentation in front of him. And he just talked. And the first thing he said was, so what we have to talk about is boring, yes? And I said, oh, Mr. Balanchine, I agree. It's going to be boring and I don't really want to even take your time. I don't need this interview horribly and I can leave. And he said, no, no, no. He said, we do interview and then we talk. He really thought about questions and answered. I'd gotten to the end. I said, okay, that's the last question. And he said, do you know what I did in the revolution? And I said, no, no, I I don't. And he said, what I did to eat. He said, I sewed saddles. And he showed me the sewing gestures. He sewed leather saddles together for horses. Balanchine started to tell Elizabeth the story of his life. He told a tale that felt like folklore from a place and time far from the man sitting with her in his office in New York in 1980. This encounter would launch Elizabeth down a path of deep exploration into Balanchine's life. She learned to write fluently in Russian and traveled to St. Petersburg to piece together a picture of how this man came to popularize ballet in America. How he created work that would so deeply move her in a theater in New York that it helped her heal after trauma. This is that story. Balanchine was born in 1904. His name was Georgi Melitonovich Balanchevatsa. Georgi lived in St. Petersburg, Russia. From the beginning, he was steeped in music. His mom played piano. His dad was a Georgian opera singer and composer but they had limited resources. Then the extraordinary event happened that they won a a lot of money, a a fortune in a lottery, or that's the story. It can't exactly be proved. Balanchine's family rose to a sort of merchant-skilled class, one that required a certain level of wealth. So Balanchine's childhood was privileged. He had a nanny. And then the father, who didn't have any idea what to do with all this money, lost it all because he listened to people who gave him bad advice, and which meant that the Balanchines gave up their city apartment and had no more money. They moved to the forests of Finland, and they settled in a dacha, or a summer house. They started to live in this summer house year-round, even through the harsh winters. In this remote area, Balanchine's mother worried about her kids' education. That's when she thought of the Imperial Theater School, which included the Tsar's School of Ballet. It would be a chance at a free education. The Imperial Theater School was directly managed as part of the Tsar's household. And the students had some contact with the royal family, you know, with teas, and they would sometimes visit backstage or whatever. At the time, being a ballerina often meant more than just being a dancer. Ballet was a very strange beast in Imperial St. Petersburg because it was both an art form and an erotic market for the grandees and the nobles who attended the show and would pick out their mistresses from the dancers on the stage.
St. Petersburg, in terms of its social organization, was much like Paris. So it had a demi-monde, which in Russian is called half-existence or half-light, which means that a wealthy man or a nobleman well-born might have two households, two lives, two sets of restaurants, two sets of clothing, two banks. It was accepted to have another shadow wife. Being a shadow wife could give a dancer status or financial security. So Balanchine's mother wanted her eldest daughter to become a ballet star. It's funny to think of a mother wanting her daughter to enter into this illicit other world, but this world offered its own rewards. To enter this world, dancers started training as children. Balanchine's sister went into audition, and Balanchine tagged along. When they got there, though, he was pulled into the audition process, and something about him stood out to the judges. When he was walking in a line of boys, a judge singled him out and had him walk alone. The sister did not get accepted into the school. But Balanchine did. He was only nine years old. Which was... Very confusing, no doubt, for a nine-year-old because he knew how much his older sister wanted the post, and he got it, and he didn't want it at all. He hated dancing. And just like that, George Balanchine was dropped into the world of ballet. His mother, dealing with her own disappointment about the daughter and the daughter's disappointment, left him there because it was a week before the school year started. And he didn't expect to be left. And I think that marked his entire life. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%.
Identity theft protection starts here. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Balanjean wasn't happy. He even ran away to his aunt's house during his first weeks at the boarding school. But he was returned to the school and all the intensity that their ballet training required. The students woke early every morning to the sound of a bell. They were rushed out of bed. They didn't even take the time to make their beds. That was left for the servants. They'd have a quick wash in cold water, put on their uniforms, and add another bell, line up for inspection. They never went out except for one hour a day they walked around the block. They took the walk in two lines, their one chance to see the outside world. From 10 to 11.30, Balanchine started the day with ballet class. Boys and girls were separated. Boys on the higher floor in front of a long wall of mirrors opposite the bar. Balanchine said he spent a year learning how the foot touches the floor after a jump. Like a bird landing, he said. After a speedy lunch, students did their academic study. Then dinner, followed by evening classes, ballroom dance, pantomime, posture, and fencing for the older boys. And then, after that, they'd take music lessons. The students could pick violin or piano. Balanchine chose piano. With all this work and skill building, Balanchine's world now revolved around the theater. His family had been blotted out. In his own mind, the curtain was closed on the family and the curtain was open on the world of the theater. Elizabeth believes he would carry this hurt from being abandoned for the rest of his life. He himself said that he felt like someone had abandoned a dog. I think he was incredibly furious, but a child of nine can't distinguish grief from anger. I imagine that his psyche shut down or closed off to his family and therefore had to open itself to his new world, the theater and the theater people. And also, in an extraordinary letter, he wrote, I hope you understand how alone I am ever since my family left me in the school at age nine. I've been alone. When I found that letter recently, I realized that that feeling of having only the theater for a family and a world and a tribe was deeply at the center of him. The only connection he had left to his family was music. That was the one constant. That was his link to the past. He couldn't emotionally connect anymore. They'd done this horrible thing. They'd abandoned him. But music could somehow connect his whole self. I imagine that that's why he had this eerie facility with matching steps to music, because he lived those steps. They were his language. In his innermost dialogue with himself, it was ballet steps, not words. And music. Elizabeth says Balanchine's teachers saw him as an independent boy who was courteous, 
detached, and eerily self-confident. Although Balanchine initially disliked the school, he grew to love ballet. He had a revelation on stage, dancing in Sleeping Beauty. With all of the music, the lights, the costumes, he realized he was in the middle of a thing of beauty. And then, Elizabeth says, ballet almost died. In 1917, a bullet burst through the theater school window and almost hit a student. Days later, a crowd in military uniforms rushed through the school halls. It was late at night. They were searching for monarchists in the dormitories, peering under beds. The Russian Revolution had begun. In October, the Bolsheviks, led by Vladimir Lenin, took control of the country. The Bolsheviks envisioned a world where workers would hold the power. The Tsar and his family were murdered, nobility was abolished, aristocrats fled or were killed. The Bolshevik Party would eventually become the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. The Tsarist Romanov dynasty was over. The Bolsheviks wanted to wipe out any whiff of the old aristocracy. And no one knew what that meant for ballet. Balanchine was 13 years old. His school closed. And life in St. Petersburg changed dramatically. The city of St. Petersburg suffered after the revolution. St. Petersburg had been the capital of the Russian Empire under the Tsar. Now, with Lenin in power, the government moved to Moscow, essentially abandoning St. Petersburg. And the resources, which were very few after the revolution, all flowed to Moscow, leaving St. Petersburg to starve and freeze. There was no heat, there was no fuel, very little food, all rationed. Balanchine School was turned into barracks for guards. That winter, in 1917 and 1918, it was hard to even find bread in a shop. 13-year-old Balanchine and his friends stole fish at night from local barges before he could find a job. But then came some hope for ballet. It had to do with Lenin's Minister of Education, who also oversaw culture and arts. Lenin's Minister of Culture had a vision of all the arts existing simultaneously and the people learning all about the high arts that they'd been deprived of. And ballet's new meaning was up for grabs. Balanchine's ballet school reopened with a new mission. Which is to make dances for a utopia, the Bolshevik utopia. Now the theater would welcome laborers, soldiers, and sailors into the audience. Workers got free tickets from their factories and labor units. Meanwhile, half the city's population was gone. They were dead from disease or off to villages in search of food. One Russian described people who passed each other in the gray, cold city as phantoms in oblivious silence. In those conditions, the ballet school started up again with utopian aims and visions, utopian excitement, and no heat and no food, which can sharpen your senses to your art and impact your health. And it did both with Balanchine. The children at ballet school had boils for malnutrition and lice that carried typhus. On cold nights, the boys and girls moved their beds from separate dormitory rooms to the old infirmary to stay warm. They suffered, but they bonded. And they felt immersed in art. 
after the revolution, all the social meetings of the art fell away and they concentrated on the pure art, on ballets just as a pure art. Since the 1700s under the Tsar, ballets performed in Russia had been filled with romantic storylines in royal courts or epic tales of castles, princes, and maidens. But that was going away. Now they had a little trouble making new ballets because what were they going to be about? It, it was all so new. Now ballet could be both grand and intimate and reveal the private emotions of people in a way that it never had been before. Balanchine was a teenager now. He grew his hair long and wore eyeliner to make his eyes look soulful. He also started to experiment with his own choreography. And what it did, I think, for Balanchine was it broke any lingering narrative associations that the steps held. So, you know, an arabesque didn't automatically mean a noble shape. It could mean anything that the choreographer wanted it to mean. Same with all the other steps. They were severed from that art that was the Tsar's family's favorite art. So it impacted him on an artistic level deeply. It was making an art new. He was in on the ground floor. But there was one tradition Balanchine would never do away with, worshiping the ballerina. Growing up in the school, he lived in the world of the ballerina, the world of these girls and women whom men watched with awe. Those little boys in the school were conditioned to worship the presiding ballerinas of the day, just like the nobles and the grandees and the businessmen in the front row worshipped them. Then Balanchine realized when he was an adolescent that there were some of his own classmates who were beautiful and worth falling in love with. And he fell in love with a young woman in the class below him named Tamara Jevrzejeva. Also known as Tamara Jeva. She was 13 when they met. At the time, the school had a faction of traditionalists, and they warned her against Balanchine and his weird choreographic ideas. But when Balanchine approached her and asked if she wanted to work with him, she said, of course. He started to choreograph for Tamara, and she began to dance his pieces. One of the first she danced with him was a pas de deux. Pas de deux means step of two in French. It means a duet, usually between a man and a woman. This duet ended with what Tamara called a revolutionary moment. Balanchine knelt. She stood on one foot on point. She held one leg in the air behind her in an arabesque. And she balanced herself by pressing her mouth against his. Tamara later said this moment was considered terribly erotic. She said every time Balanchine choreographed, he tried to see how much he could get away with. He never seemed to doubt himself. She wondered if his religious belief made him feel he was destined for greatness, like he was channeling God. Balanchine and Tamara decided to get married. They were young. There are different reports on exactly when it happened, but Balanchine was probably 18 and Tamara, 15. They performed in little theaters together. They got paid in food more than money. And then, in 1924, when Balanchine was just 20 years old, he and Tamara had a chance to leave Russia. And it was ballet that would let them do it.
From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Around 1924, Tamara Jiva and George Balanchine met a croupier, a guy who worked the gambling tables at a local casino. His name was Vladimir. Vladimir made a lot of money working a high-stakes table, and he convinced the government to let him finance a European ballet tour. They got out of Russia by asking permission to go give a tour in Germany, and they got out. Jim Steichen is a historian who studied Balanchine. Once they got to Germany, they got picked up by Serge Diaghilev, the really creative impresario that founded the Ballet Russe in Paris. Diaghilev had created one of the most influential ballet companies ever, the Ballet Russe. For 20 years, the Ballet Russe really defined the new face of ballet. Diaghilev worked with famous composers like Ravel, Stravinsky, Debussy, Prokofiev, and Satie. Painters like Matisse and Picasso made sets. Coco Chanel was one designer who created costumes. Balanchine walked into all of this as a dancer. But soon Diaghilev let him choreograph, too. Balanchine started to play with and push the old-school Russian style he had learned growing up. Balanchine took that technique and made it new. He would introduce more acrobatic moves. He loved making giant daisy chains out of his dancers. Utterly untraditional moments where people look like they're swimming in midair, like they're doing somersaults. Like, oh my God, what is that? I've never seen that before. Balanchine was finding his legs as a choreographer. And then came 1929. Diaghilev, the head of the Ballet Russe, died. 
the stock market crashed, uh, World War II began to eventually heat up in a very real way. Balanchine needed to figure out what to do next. The answer came in the form of a wealthy American. Enter Lincoln Kirstein, this young American who's really interested in art. Lincoln Kirstein came from a family with money. He was in his 20s and obsessed with all kinds of art. So when he met Balanchine on a trip to London, he was enamored. Balanchine had a nickname when he was a youngster. He was called the Rat. He kind of had like a kind of a snaggle tooth. He wasn't like a movie theater actor, kind of iconic beauty that way. He was on the shorter side. Man of few words, it seems. He was very social. He loved to cook. Even in his 20s, Balanchine oozed creativity, which Lincoln Kirstein loved because he wanted to do something big. He invited Balanchine to join him in the U.S. to build a ballet company. Lincoln Kirstein decided that he was going to make it his next big project to create a dance school and company in America that would synthesize the best of the Russian ballet traditions, the Italian and French traditions, and make it a thoroughly American enterprise. They would start a school to train American dancers. Tuition would be free so that students could be admitted based on, quote, their perfect possibilities. In exchange, students would agree to appear exclusively in school performances for five years, so they wouldn't get snapped up by Broadway or Hollywood once they were trained. And Balanchine could make his experimental ballets. He arrived in New York and started by teaching dancers his previous works, or making versions of them. But he had to make something original. In 1934, it was time to choreograph a new piece, his first in the United States. The music would be Tchaikovsky's Serenade for Strings. Balanchine told Kirstein the day of the first rehearsal, his head was a blank. Pray for me, he said. They started off with their usual dance class, and then Balanchine gathered the dancers who were there that day, 17 of them. He lined them up by height, then started to arrange them on the floor. It was a sunny day. One dancer said Balanchine started slowly to compose a hymn to ward off the sun. When he was done arranging, the dancers were in an unusual pattern, later called the Orange Grove, two diamonds side by side. The opening is a magical moment in theater. The music starts before the curtain rises. When the curtain does rise, you see this orange grove of dancers on stage. But they're not dancing. They're completely still. And they each have one hand raised up. Like they're trying to shield their eyes from the sun. (laughs) 
they hold that position for a mysteriously long time through eight measures. More than a minute has passed. The music soars, but the dancers still haven't moved. Then, finally, they move. But just a little. They start to move one hand. Almost in slow motion. As Balanchine said, the wrist breaks as if the wrist were tired. And the hand comes down. And then they move the other arm. They bring their arms together in a circle. And that's when the feet pop open to make first position. They push their feet to the side into ballet turnout the most basic position of ballet. It's almost like the first exercises of a ballet class, slowed down. You would think it'd be boring, but instead it feels profound. It's like you see 17 dancers wake up their bodies to dance for the first time. Like they're learning in front of you that their bodies can hold music. They start with the most basic shapes of ballet. A line. A circle. A flowing arm. It's just beautiful. Over the days he choreographed, the rehearsal process was ragtag. Balanchine didn't know how many dancers would show up, so he choreographed for whoever was there. One day for 17, the next day 9, then 6. Historically, when you'd choreograph a ballet, there would be a libretto or a description of what would happen in the ballet, the plot. And this time there wasn't anything. There was just the music, the dancers, and Balanchine. Balanchine let his dancers inspire him. He created the first pose when he saw a dancer who shielded her eyes from the sun. When a dancer ran in late, he made it a part of the ballet. When a dancer fell, he wove that in too. The ballet spun off into beautiful, swift, wild dance. He has them swooping in formation, in circles, in squares, closing, opening, rushing around. You cannot see this marvelous work without falling under its spell because the music has such a sweep and urgency and so does the dancing. The dancers at rehearsals came from such varied styles and backgrounds that this was how Balanchine could mold them as his dancers, making his shapes his unique style. It was a way to make dancers with disparate trainings and backgrounds all feel like they can be part of a harmonious, beautiful whole. He called it Serenade. Serenade would become a pillar for Balanchine's dancers, one they'd return to again and again. That ballet is this important symbol of his arrival in America and his starting this new chapter in his artistic life. And it is a gorgeous ballet. It's one of his best. It's like a Desert Island ballet, if you could even have a Desert Island ballet. (laughs) It is this beautiful ritual. It does feel like a ritual. 
And as the ballet unfolds, it has images that feel full of meaning, like myths layered on top of each other, tropes and narratives you can't quite grasp. The story of the ballet doesn't really have a story. It has many stories, but I think the stories are kind of buried. We have images that are very powerful. As a dance historian, Lynn Garofola knows that Balanchine is famous for making ballets without narratives. His ballets are about movement and the music. But she sees something more. What you might call a private resonance or a personal echo. This is something deeply personal. And she sees this in Serenade. There's one moment that always moves her in a deep, even terrible way. What happens in that moment is that there is a man with two women dancing together, and it's clear that there is a profound feeling among all of those three people. Love, eroticism, but that there's also danger. Someone is going to be left behind, and he's going to make a choice. They dance furiously. Then one of the women falls back into his arms. But he doesn't lift her up again. Instead, he lowers her, slowly inching downward until she's flat on the floor. She reaches up to him, but he stands up. And the other dancer leads him away. He has made his choice. The moment when the man walks off with the other woman is terrible. It never ceases to touch me with the sense that the man is very much a stand-in for Balanchine, and also the sense of betrayal and abandonment. He moves on and leaves the other weeping on the floor. Next time on The Turning. There are no windows. We don't need windows because the outside world doesn't matter. He was God in the theater. Ever observing, ever present. Are you a patriot? Are you a citizen? Are you willing to do whatever I ask you to do? The Turning is a production of Rococo Punch and iHeart Podcasts. It's written and produced by Aylan Lance Lesser and me. Our story editor is Emily Foreman. Mixing and sound design by James Trout. Jessica Carissa is our assistant producer. Andrea Aswahe is our digital producer. Fact-checking by Andrea Lopez Cruzado. Special thanks to Elizabeth Kendall, Jim Steichen, and Lynn Garofola. Their books on this topic are fascinating, so go check out their work. Our executive producers are John Parati and Jessica Alpert at Rococo Punch, and Katrina Norvell and Nikki Etor at iHeart Podcasts. 
For photos and more details on the series, follow us on Instagram at Rococo Punch. And you can reach out via email, theturning at rococopunch.com. I'm Erica Lance. Thanks for listening. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.